You're listening to Never Sleeps Network. Hey guys, Aaron Broverman here just to tell you about our sponsor, Harry Tarantula. Harry Tarantula is our original sponsor. They're the OG sponsor. They were here in the very beginning when we were just a fledgling comic book show done out of some guy's bedroom. But they have some amazing product for you. Just go down to their store at 3456 Young Street and you can get your role-playing games. You can get your comic books, of course. You can get your tabletop games. They have everything. We got Pokemon cards. We've got Star Wars miniatures. They just have everything that you could possibly want. Plus, Leon, their owner, is an amazing dude. He uh, He's very honest and uh, he'll get you everything you need. And uh, they have an amazing new space there at 3456 Young Street. So you got to go down. You got to check out their merchandise. Sometimes they have weekly live role-playing games, some Magic the Gathering stuff. They're doing championships all the time. You've probably seen a lot of their stuff on our social media because we try to promote them any way we can because without them we wouldn't be able to put this podcast together for you so please if you're local to toronto and even if you're not look them up at www.harryt.com and uh, check them out at 3456 young street and tell them aaron sent you Listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one on one with Toronto's comic book luminaries, with your host, Aaron Broverman. Hey, fan people, welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. You found us on Never Sleeps Network from NeverSleepsNetwork.com. And don't forget to subscribe on Stitcher, Google Play, uh, Apple Podcast, and wherever you get your podcast needs met. You can follow us on social media everywhere at SpeechBubblePod. Don't forget to review our show. Send us some love. If you DM me on any social media platform, uh, I will send you a free comic from my personal collection just for reviewing our show. Um, with me today is... A great artist from Canada. He is uh, pretty legendary uh, recently. He's known for his historical graphic memoir, Two Generals. It was nominated for two Eisner Awards, named one of Chapters Indigo's best books. It was selected as one of the best American comics in 2012 and named by CBC as one of the 10 best nonfiction books of all time. Uh, He's also known for his work on True Patriot, the Canadian comic anthology series, his young adult comic series, Three Thieves, which won a Joe Schuster Award for Best Comic for Kids, and his various covers for Betty Page, uh, the comic series about the famous pinup from Dynamite Comics. 
And uh, right now, he's promoting a mini-comic called All-Stars. It's the true story of the 1934 Chatham Colored All-Stars. And uh, I'm really excited to dig into that with him. And uh, basically, a lot of historical comics, really, really great. And uh, he's also currently working on a, a biography, a graphic biography of a jazz cornet player, uh, named Bix Biderbeck, and he comes to TCAF as part of Librarian and Educator Day. Uh, we are recording this on TCAF weekend, but by the time you hear it, uh, TCAF will have already passed, but we're glad to catch up with him, and all the people that couldn't attend TCAF will hear from our guest, Scott Chandler. Welcome, Scott. How are you? I'm very well, Aaron. Thanks for uh, having me in. Uh, I'm really excited to have you in. Uh, two generals, uh, really amazing, really caught fire in Canada, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, digging into your fascination with historical comics and and your your young adult uh, comics as well. So, uh, but before we get into that, I just want to get a sense of what your growing up life was like. Oh. Pretty normal, really. Um, I grew up, well, I was born in Deep River, Ontario, up kind of north, uh, north of Algonquin Park there, uh, for, you know, only lived there for a few years before my parents moved to St. Thomas, Ontario, so more southwestern Ontario uh, area, and grew up there, and had a fairly normal childhood, really, you know, kind of small town, 70s and 80s, uh, you know, normal Canadian boy kind of a kind of a life. Were you a comic geek when you were a kid? Yeah, I think that's a safe description. Um I can't remember when I discovered comics, but it was probably through the uh 60s Batman TV show. I'm not quite that old, but when I was a little kid in the 70s, everything on afternoon TV was a rerun from the 60s. And so, you know, afternoon TV was like Batman, The Monkeys, The Fugitive, you know, a lot of those great 60s shows. And uh, I, I, I couldn't tell you for sure, but I, I remember loving Batman when I was four or five years old. And I think the Batman show probably led me to the Batman comics. And in those days, it was still the Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams, kind of classic 70s Batman era. And uh, so I got into some of that stuff when I was pretty young, I think. Yeah. That, that's awesome. Yeah. I'm also into the Batman uh, 1966 Adam West TV show. My, yeah. my dad grew up with it, and he introduced me to it because yeah. even in the 90s, it was like afternoon rerun television on YTV and things like that. It's so, so fun. I mean, the the humor of it. You know, I know. You know, we have you know a progression of various darker Batman's now, which are also great. But that show is just so fun and so wild, and uh, you know, uh, translates very well across generations. I assume. And now yeah. it's finally in comics, so they're kind of yeah. continuing the story yeah. a little bit too. Absolutely. So that's really cool. Um, so as like a geeky kid and like growing up loving that kind of stuff, when did you figure like this is something you want to do? I want to be a cartoonist. Uh, as, as soon as I started noticing the credits at the bottom of splash pages of superhero comics, 
Uh, you probably hear this answer from a lot of creators, but as soon as I realized this was a job, I wanted that job, <laughs> right? So, uh, yeah, uh, that was, I, I mean, my, my mom used to say that I, you know, would I, at some point, probably six or so, just announced, I'm going to draw comics when I grow up. And I was right. So how <laughs> did you, I guess, prepare yourself for your future? Did you, were you uh, drawing comics the Marvel way? Were you, did you uh, always draw? Like, how were you practicing? Yeah, I did all that stuff. I was, I was a kid who drew. Um, I drew pretty much all the time. And, you know, once I understood what comics were, then I was making up stories and, and drawing those stories in comics form. So... Uh, yeah, I was I was always making comics. I have comics still in my possession that I made when I was five or six. Um, you know, Batman and Spider Man, just very simple. You know, stick figure. You know, you can tell it's Batman and Spider Man though. Um, yeah, just I just started doing it, and um, you know, as you get older, uh, you know, you you hopefully get better at drawing, and uh, and your stories get a little more sophisticated. Um, I definitely had drawn comics the Marvel way. Um, I can't even remember what else I, you know, yeah, I, I can't remember what else I, I would have sort of, you know, been into to kind of research how to do this. I think you largely kind of figure it out. Um, you know, there's lots of stuff in schools now and you can go to college and study comics now and, and stuff like that. There's Max the Mutt here in town where I used to teach for a little while. Um, but you know, in those days there was no way to get educated in this. You just had to sort of educate yourself. Even when I was in university, I knew I wanted to do this. So I took a little bit of fine art, a little bit of English literature, a little bit of creative writing, a little bit of acting, a little bit of design, you know, everything I knew that I was going to need, you know, uh, I tried to put myself together in education in this. And then a little later on, uh, I did a, po did a postgraduate degree at Sheridan College in animation. Um, you know, because I knew I would want, you know, those kind of skills to get the characters to perform and the sense of timing that animators have, which is so refined. Right. And storyboarding is a lot like comics. Absolutely. Too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, I kind of put myself together in, in education, which was nice. Um, but even before I got to that stage, you know, later in my teenage years, I started discovering uh, comics like Will Eisner, um, creators like Will Eisner. Uh, you know, the spirit, you know, was a real revelation to me. You know, the, those stories were 50 years old, even at that time. But, uh, you know, I found Eisner really constructive. He was, uh, or instructive. He was, uh, he was one of those creators that kept me interested in comics into adulthood and uh, interested in creating comics into adulthood. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, just I'll I'll just whatever whatever went in the mix. <laughs> uh, leading into that, yeah, because you said you started with like how to draw comics the Marvel way and drawing superheroes and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is very specific. It's like you know they're muscle bound, they're eight heads tall, there's right. perspective, that kind of thing. Yeah, but then your style sort of developed into something closer to something like the Spirit, something more classical, something more. I would say like Jay Bone, Darwin Cook, that sure. kind of thing. How did you sort of transform your style? Because I guess as a kid, you're drawing superheroes, but then yeah. right now your style is like way away from, from what Marvel is. Well, when you're 10 or 12, uh, you know, what you're interested in is, you know, 
Spider-Man, mm-hmm. <laughs> you, know, yeah. you know, and, uh, and so that's what you draw mm-hmm. and that's, and that's what you try to draw. And it's a good place to start. Uh, there's, um, I'm not in as in love with, uh, how to draw comics the Marvel way as a lot of people are, but there's a lot of good drawing advice in there. Right. And yeah, it's all for muscle bound barbarians and stuff, but it's, it's still, uh, you know, perfectly functional drawing advice, you know, aimed at young people. Um, I actually recently bought that book for, a. Uh, a young relative of mine uh, who's about that age because it's uh, it's still a good you know kind of basic how to draw uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> book and and you know using superheroes as a way to make the medicine go down um, but yeah it was um, the honestly the real revelation for me was meeting Ty Templeton who I don't know if you've had on the show we've had a lot of his students on. sure yeah who was a big uh, you know uh, obviously a big uh, uh, name in, in Canadian comics and in comics in general. He was the first comics creator I ever met. I came on the train and met him at a small convention here that had like three guests in maybe 1991. And, uh, and he spent a long time with my sample pages I showed him. He's a great teacher, as I'm sure other people have told you. Right. And, you know, a lot of times when you show a professional comics creator, your art, it's just like, ah, work on anatomy or, you know, work on whatever. But he spent probably a good half an hour or 40 minutes with me. Kind of, he would turn each page of my samples over and lay it out. He really wanted to talk about layout and like how you choose what goes in the panels and, and the thought process that he would go through and how he would have laid out my pages. And then you know, that really made 18 or 19 year old me or however old I was realize, oh, it's not about drawing cool looking stuff. It's about telling the story as clearly and dramatically as possible. So, I mean, uh, I mean, to get finally get around to answering your question, I mean, after that, to me, storytelling became the more important thing and drawing like whichever hero of mine drew superhero comics uh, became less of a priority, right? You know, like like a lot of people in my generation, I was just trying to be John Byrne, <laughs> you know, until I uh, kind of in you know you know no disrespect to John Byrne, who is also a very good storyteller, but um, yeah, my my own r- inclinations as a comics reader and a comics creator definitely went off on a different path. Yeah, at that point, sort of late teens, early 20s. Nice. Also, around that time, um, Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics came out and changed a lot of people's perception about what they were doing and could do. That book came out just at the right time for me. It caught me just at the right moment when I could have gone one way or the other. And, you know, I, I went the way I went. Yeah, because it, it kind of taught people that, like, Comics could be taken seriously as, right. a, as a medium for storytelling. Yeah, it, it really did. And, and it, it didn't just kind of insist on that. It showed you why it was true. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, yeah, it was, a, was, like I say, a great book and, and came out sort of right when I needed it. That's awesome. Yeah. So y- you have sort of, like, at least for me, and I'm sure a lot of people, uh, and this is probably why you get assignments like, the Betty Page covers and stuff is like your style sort of harkens back to like a, a golden age of comics. Yeah. Like not, not completely imitating, but sort of there's a feeling that it elicits and you do it in sort of a contemporary way. Sure. So how did you come to that? What is it about that 
kind of historical illusions, I guess, that you're making that you that you like that you keep doing. Yeah, in your style. it's not something I've ever really done consciously. Um, I think that when you draw simply and in a way that you know puts a bit of emphasis on design, um, it just it harkens back to a day when illustration looked like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, it works for me. Um, and, and a lot of that is probably processing through my work, different influence and stuff. Cause I love a lot of that stuff, that kind of mid-century American design style. You know, I know life wasn't good for a lot of people in those days. Uh, but you know, things looked great. You Aesthetically know, it was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Car, cars looked great. Clothes looked great. The blender looked great. Uh, you know, everyday objects looked great. And, um, it's a fun, it's, it's fun to draw period stuff. And it's, it's, it's nice to kind of wonder, uh, what things would look like if the world still looked like that. <laughs> and, um, the Betty Page thing kind of came out of nowhere. I bumped into an editor from Dynamite at, uh, New York Comic-Con a few years ago. And, and he really dug this Tarzan print that I had done, this kind of retro style Tarzan that I was flogging at the show. And they were they tried to get me to draw the Betty Page book, but we couldn't quite uh, could couldn't quite get there price wise. I, I can't work for Dynamite page rates. <laughs> no, no offense, Dynamite. Their cover rate is a little better though, so we we settled on me doing uh, a guest cover for every issue. But um, yeah, it was weird because you know a lot of my work is for kids or is uh, you know kind of historical and stuff. Betty Page seems like a bit of an outlier, but it's because I know the period. You know, they have a bunch of other you know. Uh, artists doing, you know, you know, cheesecake, cheesecake style, you know, pinups and stuff. But uh, they knew that I had a real affinity for the the period and the the look of the period. So those have been really fun to do. And I feel like it's not that far from what you do because because it, it's already historical in a way. Like cheesecake is its own yeah, historical yeah, exactly type of yeah. pinup photography. Yeah, and it's been nice to do. And and it had been a long time since I'd done much work in the direct market. Like for the last decade, I've been working primarily with with book publishers in the in sort of you know bookstore chains and and, and libraries in those markets and. Um, you know, really since my Oni Press days, the very early days of my career, um, you know, people who go to the comic store every Wednesday don't necessarily see my work. Um, so it's been kind of nice. You know, I, I feel like the Betty Page covers are probably reaching people who have never seen my work before, which is a, a nice bonus. That's awesome. Yeah. So getting back to those Oni days and you breaking in. Sure. What is your, you know, break-in story? Everybody has one. They're usually pretty exciting. Yeah. Um, what? How did you break into comics? I really, uh, after meeting Ty Templeton there in 91, I went off to university and, like I said, put myself together, you know, all the tools I thought I would need and was just going great guns, excited about having a career in comics. And that would have been about 1993, 94, when the bottom dropped out of the of the comics market, uh, for, for a while, there was all the stuff going on with distribution at the time and the, the speculator bubble burst. And for a while, it just seemed like there wasn't maybe going to be comics anymore. Right. Right. I I got into collecting right in 95. Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it was, it was weird. Like for a long time I felt, Oh, I've come along at the wrong time. Um, 
you know, maybe this isn't a thing I'm going to be able to do. So I spent the 90s um, sort of building a career as a commercial illustrator and just, you know, never really gave up on the idea of comics. But I actually started, I was one of the first wave of web comics artists. Very few people remember this, and there's no reason why they should. But in 2000, I started a, uh, a very short-lived webcomic called Pulp. And uh, like I said, not too many people were doing webcomics at the time. And um, I, I didn't even do it for very long. It might have just been a few months. But one of my readers was uh, Jay Torres. Oh, nice. Who, yeah, she, yeah you, you know the name. He's a well-known uh, uh, comics writer here in uh, Canada. Yeah, and, he's, and, right, and right here in Toronto. Yeah, he's been yeah. on the show. We did yeah. a live oh, episode. Yeah, okay, him. good. I haven't yeah. listened to that episode, but yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back and catch it. Yeah. Because uh, he's a good dude uh, to whom I owe my career. <laughs> uh, and a, a lot of people uh, can say that. He's, um, he's one of those writers who's constantly uh, looking for new artists to work with and, and bringing people into the business. And uh, a lot of people in comics owe their careers to Jay. Uh, it's certainly not just me. But anyway, he was reading my webcomic. Uh, and eventually uh, emailed me uh, to say how much he was enjoying it. And he was already in comics at that point. He'd done a bit of writing for Marvel and um, was uh, doing his, uh, his... He did an autobiographical indie comic, the name of which I can't... The Copybook Tales. Uh, yeah, there, that was there. I couldn't remember the title, yeah. but it came to me as I was saying I couldn't remember it. There you go. <laughs> um, uh, and he was talking about doing this series with Oni... Um, and thought I would be a good artist for it if he could get it greenlit. And by that point, I had kind of given up. And I was like, okay, well, just let me know if anything happens. <laughs> and a few months later, something happened. He got that project greenlit at Oni. And so it was supposed to be a four-issue miniseries, but it was this was around 2003 when graphic novels in the, in the bookstore market were starting to become a thing. It was the year of Jimmy Corrigan and Blankets. Right. And that, so, every, you know, a lot of indie publishers like Oni were rolling their four-issue miniseries into original graphic novels. And so that's what happened with my first book with Jay, Days Like This. And, um, and it did okay. Uh, like, it certainly didn't make anybody rich, but it... Uh, Ended up on a few kind of like the the Yalsa, uh, you know, best book for teens list, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, it, it got some attention, you know, and it at least allowed us to do another book with Oni. And then that book, the second book Jay and I did together was called Scandalous, which hardly anybody remembers. Um, but that was enough to get me nominated for my first Eisner. I was nominated for the Russ Manning Newcomer Award nice. that year. And, uh, and so then we were off to the races, <laughs> you know, then, then it seemed like things were happening. So I always really wanted to write as well. Um, I enjoyed working with Jay, but you know, my, my goal was to always, you know, kind of draw my own stuff like Will, Will Eisner did, right? Like, right. uh, to, to write my own stuff and own, you know, own it. Uh, so I started pitching Oni, you know, I had a two book relationship with them at this point. So I started pitching them my own stuff. Uh, they liked uh, a pitch of mine called Northwest Passage, which uh, we did uh, for a little while. There was three little digest size editions that eventually got rolled into a bigger hardcover graphic novel that uh, was a, a big buzz book when it was released at San Diego in 2007, I believe. And 
And that was the first book I ever did that made money. Wow. <laughs> so once you do a book that makes money, uh, every, you know, uh, that, that definitely opens some doors. Because uh, then, um, you know, I, I started getting offers from other publishers saying, hey, what would you like to come do for us? And so that led to two generals and these three thieves books and everything else I've ever done. Did you said before that you've you've mostly like currently you're working with like book publishers and that sort of thing? Yeah. Uh, did you ever see your career going in that direction? And what what do you think is different about working for them than like I guess the big two and like you know comic publishers that that yeah. comic fans are more aware of? I mean, I couldn't have imagined it because even when I first started. 15, 16 years ago, that wasn't an option. Mm -hmm. Um, So, uh, yeah, I mean, to to answer your question, I mean, no, I never imagined it. I am glad it's, um, I'm glad it's an option now because it gives us, it has given us that library market. It has given us the, uh, you know, bookstore chains. It has, uh, you know, brought, and also at the same time brought in a lot of different, uh, types of content and mm-hmm. types of creators and, um, you know, types of styles. And, um, you know, I like superhero comics as much as the next person, but Marvel and DC pretty well have those covered. Right. You know, we need publishers who will do everything else. And, you know, your choices in the old days were working, you know, with a very small indie publisher or, you know, just going out on your own Dave Sim style and, and hoping for the best. Um, but now, I mean, you can do... The kind of work I do, or the kind of work all, all kinds of other people are doing, and do them, you know, on a big scale uh, for, you know, big mass market book publishers. And it's, it's wonderful. It's, uh, yeah, it's hard to imagine anything better. I certainly couldn't have imagined. When, when you're trying to break into comics, the idea is just to break in. You, right. just, you just want to do it at all. Right. And then, you know, once you're in, it's like, okay, well, can I do... You know, how, how far can I take this? And, you know, the answer is, you know, sometimes pretty far. I would not have imagined being able to do what I do at this level uh, when I first started it. Yeah, not not at all. Is the relationship different? Like, do you get a little bit more creative control, creative freedom, that um, kind of thing than you would with, like, you know, because with DC and Marvel, you have to stick with, like, continuity and things like that. Yeah. So I have never worked for either Marvel or DC. Yeah. I have I have talked to DC a couple times about some things, but nothing that's ever panned out. But friends of mine who do work for Marvel and DC, um, you know, have, have said, you know, depending on the editor and the company and the, the title, it can be fairly restrictive. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not sure it would be for me regardless. Um, but, uh, yeah, with, you know, stuff like I do, you know, work that you own, um, yeah, there is a lot more creative leeway. Certainly editors have, uh, you know, ideas. There are always notes. (laughs) There are always comments. Um, you know, do, do you think you should go this way instead of that way or try this instead of that? But, um. Yeah, in, in the end, it's, it's you know, pretty much your baby and, and your call. Nice. Yeah. So what attracts you to the type of work that you do? You do a lot of historical stuff, a lot of, like, graphic biography stuff, a lot of stuff for young adults. What fascinates you about that kind of thing? What do you, what do you like about history? Well, uh, when you start out, you're just pitching stuff and you do whatever gets greenlit. Um, but 
you know, yeah, eventually you do uh, start to recognize some patterns in, in the kind of material you're pitching. Um, and then you get to a point in your career where you can kind of, I mean, it, it's not like every pitch I send out these days gets, uh, you know, picked up immediately. But, you know, I do feel like I'm in a uh, position where any book I want to do is probably going to get done somehow eventually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I can be a little choosy, which is nice. Um, history to me is interesting because I, I, I just like doing research. I mean, I'm not a historian, but I'm just, I'm in kind of an interested history buff. And, um, I just, I just enjoy going to the library or going to the archive and seeing what they got and, you know, rooting around on the internet for what I can find out about, uh, about a subject. And, um, yeah, I'm not afraid to, uh, you know, kind of roll up my sleeves and dig in when it comes to that. I love, I feel like I'm learning something and get paid to do it, (laughs) you know, and that's always nice. And history is also such a great, um, uh, you know, you know, wealth of stories, uh, you know, story is right there in the word. And, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, you might make up a story, uh, about something, but you find there's a story in history that's even crazier <laughs> than the one you would have made up. Um, with two generals specifically, you know, that, that came out of just my curiosity about what my grandfather's experience in the Second War, World War would have been. Right. It was your own, like, personal history, at least your family's history. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, like a lot of veterans, he didn't talk very much about his war experience. The family kind of knew the broad strokes of it. But, um, you know, in terms of the details, that was not stuff he talked about, really. So uh, a lot of the events in that book are things that I was able to kind of find out and recreate, uh, you know, after he passed away in 1997. But... um, Did you ever talk to him about it? You know, when and if my grandfather ever talked about the war, you'd get like a funny story. Like there's an episode in the book where he, you know, they are uh, at the front and he uh, goes uh, to take a dump in the woods (laughs) and he's digging a hole uh, and he looks up and sees a German officer doing the same thing. And uh, they both go for their guns and he happens to get his first and and takes the, the German officer prisoner with his pants around his ankles. And, uh, you know, that, that's the, you know, you would have get, got something like that if, if he were to talk about the war at all, it'd be, it'd be some absurd, funny thing that happened. That's pretty much the only scene in the book that, that came directly from him. The rest, like I say, is stuff that I was able to, to piece together after the fact. But like I say, for that book, it was mostly just my own interest. I was about the same age. He was about, uh, he was like in his very early thirties when he went to war. He was a bit older. He was an officer older than some of the enlisted men. Um, and once I was about that age, I just, my own curiosity about it, uh, you know, could not be satiated <laughs> other than to find out everything I could and then write a book about it. And writing a book is a great way to motivate your research, by the way. There's the old saying, if you want to know everything about a subject, write a book about it. That is true. <laughs> and it seems like you'd be pulling kind of double or triple duty uh, in relation to doing research for a graphic novel, because not only do you have to research it like you're writing a book, but then you have to like kind of translate it into comic panels and stuff like that. The so. visual stuff adds a whole other level of research. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, like you say, you don't only have to recreate what happened. You also have to recreate what it looked like. Mm-hmm. And that, like I did, 
a year worth of research for two generals and thought I had a good handle on the material. And I went to start drawing it, and I was just like, oh, crap. I don't know what a tank looks like. I don't know what these uniforms look like. And military people, and military historians in particular, you know, they, they know their stuff. You got to know which hat goes with what uniform and which badge goes on the hat and, uh, you know, how they lace their boots and, <laughs> you know, all that stuff. Kind of intimidating. It is a little bit. And, and you know, you can't get it all right, but you do the best you can for sure. Um, when you're starting your research, like what's your what's your research process? Like obviously you must have had to interview family and be a little bit of a journalist for this for this book or Yeah, a little bit. For two generals, my family didn't know a whole lot more than I did. Um I I asked them about it certainly, and people told me what they had remembered being told by him, a lot of which ended up just being unusable. A lot of which, you know, my research proved that that wasn't the case. He must have been talking about somebody else or, or something. Um, yeah, the, the research, I mean, it's probably a little different for every book. Obviously, the book about my grandfather, I could start talking to my family. I actually started with his 1943 diary. He had a, he had wow. a pocket diary he had with him during a year of training in England leading up to D-Day. And that was the first sort of document that I really... Uh, dug into. Did you always know that it existed, or did you have to discover it? You know, I found it in um, after he died in 1997. Um, my grandmother uh, was going into long-term care a year or two after that, and the house was being sold, their house. And uh, there was the process of cleaning out that house so it could be sold, and that's when I came across this diary. Wow. And, uh, yeah, at the time, like I said, this was like the late 90s. Uh, the book was still a decade away. But, um, yeah, just flipping through that diary and reading different passages really stuck with me and, and was probably the start of the project, even though I didn't know it at the time. And at the time, you hadn't <laughs> even, like, really broken into comics yet. No, at the so time, I wasn't. you were going to yeah, use the, it for anything. The, the, this was during my uh, illustration years uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, and well before I broke into comics. Yeah. yeah. But then at some point, I guess after Northwest Passage, you're like, actually, I have a really good story. Right. Right? Yep. Yeah, one of the, uh, part of the flood of work that came after uh, Northwest Passage was was two generals. I signed contracts for eight books the year after Northwest Passage came out. Wow. And it was the seven Three Thieves books and two generals. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that was, that, that work kept me going for like a decade. So for people who aren't familiar with two generals, it is a big book. You guys should Go and like pick it up for sure. We're going to talk about a little bit about its acclaim that followed its release, but uh, give sort of the synopsis or like the elevator pitch of that. Uh, it is really just a graphic adaptation of my grandfather's experiences in the Second World War. It's about him and his best friend Jack Chrysler, who uh, enlisted together in uh, in 1943, went overseas, were involved in the invasion of Normandy, and it's mostly centered around. Um, the battle that took place in a French town called Buron about a month after D-Day. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. So it comes out, and then it kind of explodes. Like It was a little nuts, yeah. How, yeah. how, how was that? Like what? How do you remember that period, and how did you sort of process it uh, emotionally? <laughs> it was odd because I worked on two generals and the first Three Thieves book, Tower of Treasure, at the same time. And... They are the two most different books you could imagine. One is a kind of a more adult historical work, 
nonfiction. Uh, uh, Tower of Treasure is just this crazy, uh, you know, uh, fantasy, uh, fun adventure, very physical, uh, you know, fun thing for kids that I was writing for my children at the time. And I thought, as I was working on them, Tower of Treasure is, you know, obviously the more commercial thing that I'm working on. Two Generals is going to be an obscure thing that my family's going to read and maybe six historians who will complain about it. Um, and so I had it completely backwards. <laughs> I mean, I mean, the three, the three thieves books, you know, have done fine, but two generals really surprised me. Um, it was unlike anything I'd ever done and I didn't know what the reaction would be. And like I say, I, I didn't think it would be that great. I thought it would a book was a book that was going to be appreciated, but not necessarily loved. And, um, now the week it can I, I think it peaked at number twenty one on Amazon, and 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 that's when I knew we were onto something, um, and then, you know, it came out just before Remembrance Day, which was a a, a smart thing I think because every newspaper in the country, you know, needed ro- content wrote about it, yeah. uh, you know, as part of their Remembrance Day coverage. Um, yeah, Chapters Indigo uh, made a big deal out of it. And, CBC and, Canada Reads. Yeah, like, that was one a, of the that, best books of all time. That was a few years later. They did a they did a nonfiction edition of um, of Canada Reads, sort of the you know best nonfiction books, best Canadian nonfiction books. And uh, the long list had uh, a lot of it had my book, it had Chester Brown's Louis Riel, and it had uh, Tangles. By, I think it's Sarah Leavitt. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so graphic novels were re- well represented on that list. It was totally. great. Yeah. 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 But that's that's a thing that'll kind of live in infamy, to borrow a World War II uh, quote, you know? Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's a book that um, uh, turns up, a, a lot of teachers use it in school. It's actually in the Thames Valley School Board where I grew up. Um, they actually teach it as part of the curriculum in that school board and a lot of teachers across the country use it kind of just more unofficially to talk about the world second world war with uh grade 10 students i guess whatever whatever year you start learning about world war ii it's on a lot of um university book lists for different courses both graphic novel courses and history courses uh which is really nice so uh, it kind of took on a life of its own. It re- it's yeah, I mean that more than anything I've done that book is out there and gets talked about and you know people it's nearly 10 years old. This is the ninth anniversary for the book, but people still come up to me all the time and and say, you know, what uh you know, some people find the history really interesting. They didn't necessarily know some of the history, but other people, especially if they are veterans or have a veteran in the family, are very moved by it. People always want to tell me they cried at the end, and they're self-conscious about that for some reason. But I'm 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 always like, hey, I cried at the end, you know. So you know, uh, you know, I'm glad you did too. I'm glad that emotion came across. So how did all this feel? How does it feel that you're sort of like you were on yeah. like a literary high for for a while? And yeah, for yeah, I mean, for a short while, but it was, um, you know, I, I had spent that. I, I spent basically a decade trying to break in, like I was saying, that 90s decade right. where, where it seemed like, oh, I, you know, I don't know if comics is still a career. Yeah, my style it, may not even fit this Right, industry. and then by the time I was in my 30s, there was stuff going on, and then, uh, and then by the time I was 40, I'd written something that seemed to really mean something to people, and that's, that's the goal, right? And um, 
I, I mean, it took a long time to get there. I, like, I am anything but an overnight success. But, uh, boy, it's gratifying to really connect with people, to do something that people clearly love and were moved by. Is it a bit of an advantage to sort of get success or, like, break in older the way that, the way that you did? I think so. Um, yeah, I ended up, my, I mean, me in my 20s wouldn't have told you this. I think I was pretty frustrated about not being able to get anything up and running in comics. But, um, and, you know, you turn 30 and you haven't done anything yet. And you're like, oh, did I miss it? But... You Meanwhile, know, thir- you have to support thir- yourself. Thir- yeah, too. thirty only seems too old when you're thirty. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> By the time you're forty, you're like, oh, I had lots of time. Um, uh, yeah, so it's. Uh, I, I'm really glad that by the time my work was well known enough that anyone was paying attention, I was doing more mature work. Right, right. I don't know how people do it now. Well, where, um, you know, your work is kind of out there on the internet. You know, even. You know, when you're still kind of working things out and people are just commenting like crazy and, uh, and you know, your work isn't there yet and it's not supposed to be. And, uh, yeah, I, I would find that really tough. I, I, I ended up being thankful for the obscurity I worked in in those early years. That's awesome. Because <laughs> I don't know, yeah, I don't know if I really wanted anyone to see that work or not. What about, like, you do a lot of uh, young adult work. And, and work for, like, teens and tweeners and kids and stuff. I do. Once I had kids, um, I, I think uh, uh, that became a, a thing I wanted to do. And also the success of uh, of Jeff Smith's Bone, the, the color scholastic editions. That, the that reissues. Re- yeah, it became the sort of ground zero for this explosion of... of uh, young adult graphic novels that we're still uh, living in. Yeah, it's weird because he had success with like Wizard and like 90s in comic shops. And then he had another thing of success that was just for kids through like Scholastic reporters. It's wonderful and and it's it's wonderful work and nobody deserves it more. Um, uh, But yeah, that really opened up uh, the book market, particularly for kids' fantasy. And like I said, as my kids came around... Um, that became something I was genuinely interested in doing. Mm-hmm. So that's how the Three Thieves series came about. My older son, who is going to turn 16 next week, uh, when he was about three or four, asked if I could make a story with a castle in it. And it turned into this seven-book series that, <laughs> that, I, that I worked on for nine years. Uh-huh. And, uh, but it was great. If you look at I don't have a copy of book one with me, but if you open book one to the start, page two is a splash page of a castle. That's and, awesome. and that's why. It's like, hey, here, here son. Check here, it off the here, list. Yeah, here's your castle. Now I'm going to do whatever I want for another seven books. <laughs> when you're a parent and you, you see your, ki- your kids and you have to like ex- sort of expose them to like the media that's out there, yeah. is there an impulse that's sort of like, well, I could do this better? Like, like, like you know, I could, there's stuff that I want to see that isn't out there, so I'm going to create it myself. Yeah, I think that's always a, a motivator. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think anyone who reads or draws or does anything creative, maybe you play music, and, uh, yeah, you're reading something that's just like, I could do better than this. And maybe you can't. Right. But, but the, the idea that maybe you could is a good motivator. Cool. Yeah. So what's your, when you're drawing and doing stuff, what's your daylight? Like, what's your process? How do you pencil? How do you ink? Like, it's a very specific style, like we were saying. So yeah. what is your, your method for, uh, for executing your projects? Well, uh... 
I mean, I work, I work a pretty long day, at least during the week. I try to take, week, take weekends off, but during the week, I tend to go about 12 hours a day at the desk because comics is just a lot of drawing. <laughs> There's a lot of drawing to do, and the only way to do it is to sit down and get it done. Um, in terms of my process, I tend to write a full script, which some people who draw their own stuff think I'm crazy for doing that. But I really like to take a pass where I'm just thinking about story. I'm thinking about plot, structure, character, theme, dialogue, all that stuff. And it's also just a good way to communicate to your editor and your publisher what you're going to do without putting a lot of those man hours into drawing. And so, yeah, I will usually do a script and and the publisher and I will bounce the script back and forth a little bit, you know, a couple of drafts uh, before I start drawing. Um, not for every project, but for nearly everything I've ever done, that's, that's been the case. And, um, and then, you know, once I have that solid story foundation to build on, I will start breaking down pages and, and laying out pages. And, um, and the important thing is that I'm not married to that script. Like once you bring things into the visual realm, you are naturally still refining the storytelling. You know, I just I just think of the art, you know, the pencil art as the second draft, right? I'm I'm taking another pass at the storytelling. I'm deciding how the world should look. I'm I'm you know working on the performances of the characters, and all of that changes stuff. You know, it's the same way that a film script often changes when they get on set and get it in front of the cameras, right? And um, so yeah, usually you know an editor will uh, you know hopefully approve those pencils you know maybe with some notes and changes. Um, I still draw very much by hand. Uh, I haven't gone digital with the drawing part yet. Um, I'm still very much uh, you know pencils and paper and then brushes and ink when I get to the ink stage. Um, but I do uh, I do use a computer for uh, uh, color and uh, and lettering. My hand lettering is terrible, <laughs> which. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm more than happy to, uh, to lay out text uh, digitally, which is kind of good, too, then, because I, I often pick a different font for every project, which gives each project a bit of character to pick a, pick a typeface that's appropriate for the project. Um, so that's, you know, basically, in a, in a very nuts and bolts basic way, that's what I do. What about tools? Like, are you partial to certain inks, certain pencils, certain well, things? I was never super fussy about tools for many years until I became successful enough to, you know, be able to afford the better brushes and stuff like that. And then I realized, oh, yeah, these are better. Um, yeah, but, I, you know, for the most part, I just, I, I, I work on, you know, Bristol like most other people do. Uh, you know, I draw with whatever will make marks on paper. When it comes to ink, I'm an old school uh, uh, Winsor Newton Series 7, number 2 brush. <laughs> you know, and then, you know, various also like, you know, nibs and stuff like that. I like the Hunt 102 nib. It's got some nice flexibility to it. Um, but yeah, you know, just kind of the, the, the basic stuff, but the maybe the higher end basic stuff. <laughs> and then, you know, when you get into coloring, uh, Photoshop uh, is usually what works for me. Um, lettering I usually lay out in uh, Adobe InDesign. And then I send it all off to 
some publisher to worry about. <laughs> and and it's great because yeah. you know the contract is signed first, so yeah. you know that it's going somewhere. At the exactly. End. <laughs> yeah, that that's a nice part of it as well. Yeah, yeah. So I want to talk about uh, this book, All Stars. Uh, yes. So it's about Boomer Harding, kind of like the Canadian Jackie Robinson, I guess. Yeah, a little bit. Um, the book's really about the whole team, although the uh, impetus for the project started with Boomer Harding. Um, my friend Heidi Jacobs, who's a librarian at the University of Windsor, uh, I met her when I was there in 2015 as the cartoonist in residence, which was a kind of a first-in-the-country experimental thing they did where I repla- uh, replaced the writer in residence for wow. a term. And that was very cool to be a part of. But one of the coolest things was I got to meet some nice folks, one of which was Heidi, um, who the following year was researching this unfortunately little-known bit of Canadian sports history where in 1934 an all-black baseball team won the Ontario Championship for that year. And uh, one of the players was Boomer Harding and his descendants... Uh, still live in the in the Chatham area and uh, knew Heidi, and that's how she got interested in researching some of this material. Um, so basically, they were just looking for ways to get this story out. You know, get gets this history a little better known. So she was sort of researching it, but didn't know how what she was going to do with it. Right. You know, I, I think uh, you know her and her uh, co-researcher uh, Miriam Wright were. Um, you know, there's a website with a lot of newspaper clippings and stuff from the day. They hired me early on to do some art for the project. Like, um, Heidi had seen this thing I did for CBC Music years ago, which told the life of Johnny Cash in four frames. Oh. And so initially, she hired me to do, like, four frames, just telling the basic story of this 1934 uh, Chatham Colored All-Stars team. And I did that, and that became a, a print that they sold uh, to raise money for the project. And, uh, uh, you know, it became a, a sort of a banner that went around with this traveling exhibit about the team. And and uh, people really liked that four-panel thing. So um, a year later, they had some more grant money, and they were like, well, can we take this four panels and, you know, increase it into a book? Um, and... You know, I, I don't know how we settled on 10 pages, but uh, somehow that seemed to be about the correct number to, to tell the story uh, as it needed to be told. And, uh, and so we started doing that, um, which was very cool to be involved in. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's uh, 10 pages is just enough to get a little bit of conflict in there. You know, we see the team, you know, some of the struggles they face in terms of uh, prejudice and stuff, and then... You know, we have a, a little bit about each of the games leading up to the final game, and and then you know we got their their big win in the final game, and it's uh, it's a nice little story and some important history as well. And uh, yeah, we did the launch for it two weeks ago uh, down in Chatham, and uh, people seem to be digging it so far. Sounds like something that could be adapted in the future into like a movie or something like that. You know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Fingers crossed. Uh, yeah, that would be uh, that would be terrific. Yeah, that's amazing. So, are you a sports fan? Were you drawn to this project in that way as well? Yeah, not particularly. I'm. I'm not. Uh, I mean, my my sports fandom is, extends pretty much to the Olympics. I'm a you know I'm a sports fan for two weeks every other year, basically. 
Um, so summer only. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> um, the uh, um, uh, what was I gonna say? Uh, to, to me, the interest in the project was mostly the uh, historical stuff and the and the kind of social justice angle. Um, uh, but Heidi Jacobs and her husband uh, Dale Jacobs, who's a professor at the University of Windsor, they are huge baseball nuts. They're they're working on a, on a big project about baseball right now, and they uh, they had the baseball stuff covered. So I brought the I brought the storytelling and the uh, and the you know uh, you know some of the visual research and and stuff like that. And but between the three of us, we figured it out. Tell me a little bit about what you're working on now, the uh, the Bix uh, Beardebeck uh, project, the cornet yeah. jazz player. I have always wanted to do a book about music uh, or about a musician and to play with um, sort of substituting uh, like musical rhythms for visual rhythms, trying to suggest music in comics form. Um which some people have done, um, and and that I have a slightly different take on, and so I, I have, like I say, always wanted to do something about a musician. Um, you know, I like kind of you know pre-fusion era jazz. I like, um, you know, Bix's story in particular is an interesting one. He was a, a white guy from a religious conservative family in Iowa who somehow got it into his head he was going to be a jazz musician. In the very early 20s. So you can imagine how that went over with the family. Um, and just his story um, is one that I think a lot of creative people could relate to. You know, you've got an idea, something you want to do, nobody in your hometown understands, <laughs> you know. And he also was a very tragic figure. He drank himself to death at the age of 28 because it was the it was Prohibition era, right? So he... He kind of got into the life of a professional musician and, you know, developed some bad habits. And you can imagine what they were drinking during Prohibition, just like rubbing alcohol, you know, just. Right. Uh, yeah, he, uh, yeah, he, he really didn't take care of himself, to say, <laughs> to say the least. Nice. Um, so it's, it's a tragic life, but like I say, a very relatable one. And it's got the whole music angle and it, it seemed like a... a you know, a perfect thing for, for what I wanted to do. The perfect story to, uh, you know, serve as a frame for some of the experiments I wanted to do with, with what comics will do in terms of visual rhythm. Yeah, because you could really uh, do the comic as if it, you're writing a piece of music. Type That's thing. exactly how I tried to think of it. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, because like the motion of the panels could sort of mimic the notes in a certain Definitely. Sort of way. That's exactly what I'm aiming at. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So if people want to find out when that comes out, if they want to follow you on social media, where can they find you? Yeah, Bix, assuming I can finish Bix by the end of the summer, which is the idea, it should come out very early next year in 2020. Uh, and that's going to be from Gallery 13, which is the new kind of comics imprint at Simon & Schuster. They've had a couple of big uh, successes lately with Jeff Lemire's uh, work. Roughneck was one of their first uh, big books. Right, and, and they have something uh, else coming out from him yeah, this summer they, as well. Yeah, they do, and they're republishing a lot of like the Stephen King, Dark Tower graphic novels, and they're, they're doing some interesting stuff and working with some interesting people. So I'm, I'm excited to see uh, how that's going to go. And people can follow me uh, just about everywhere you can follow people. I'm on Instagram as at Scott Chandler. Uh, same on Twitter at Scott Chandler. I'm pretty sure my Facebook page is Scott Chandler Cartoonist. 
Um, don't quote me on that, but that that should get you at least pretty close. <laughs> nice. I think I think it's that they can at least search your name. For exactly. Sure. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for coming in, and uh, we'll see you next time on Speech Bubble. Thanks, man. Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. See you next time. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network is hosted by me, Aaron Broverman, and features audio editing from Armin Zoberi. It has announcements by Craig Mayhem and Sean Ward, with graphical assistance by Brittany Tice.